Well, good morning. It's good to have you out there listening to us. I really look forward to next week when I can look out and see a group of people. Uh, hopefully a hundred people will be here and that will be very encouraging because we're all tired of looking at screens right now and cameras uh, and we want to see your faces. When I was uh, going to seminary, I um, took a course in philosophy, actually quite a few, and on one occasion we had a graduate assistant who was doing her Ph.D. in philosophy at Yale, and she was doing the breakout sessions and helping us to understand concepts that were difficult to understand, helping us review for exams and all that kind of thing. And on occasion, she would teach. And every time she taught, it seemed, or every time she had a breakout session with us, she would make a comment like this. She would say, I apologize for using an analogy, but. And then she would use an analogy. After a, one class when she was teaching, I, I decided I'd go up to her and say something. And I said, uh, you know what? I wish you'd stop apologizing for using analogies. I said, because that's the only way some of us are actually going to get it. And furthermore, I just think it's good pedagogy to use analogy. I didn't launch into a little sermon, but I could have, about how the greatest teachers use analogies, metaphors, stories like this is frequently used. Jesus was at the top of the list. He constantly used pictures, he gave us images, he used metaphor and analogy. And today we have one of those images, a picture, an analogy, concerning our life with God and with one another. If Jesus had been in, let's say, 20th century America, depending on the region, he might have used a little different analogy. Had he been in South Florida, where I grew up, he might have used the analogy of a citrus tree. Had he been in Georgia, he might have used the analogy of a, a peach tree. Had he been in Michigan, maybe he would have used the analogy of an apple tree. But Jesus used an analogy of a vine, and for good reason. Because a vine was very familiar to his listeners. And as a matter of fact, a vine, when it comes to his Jewish listeners, is more than just an image. It's a deeply personal analogy concerning who they are. In the history of Israel, God is frequently referred to as the gardener or the caretaker of a vineyard or of a vine. And Israel is named that vine. As a matter of fact, at the entrance of the holy place and the temple, there was a huge vine that went up the columns. And people who were especially wealthy and had the money to contribute to the building of the temple were delighted to be able to put part of the vine together with their money. Um, they would use an enormous amount of money to place that vine, that growing vine, up the column. It's an agricultural metaphor, analogy, image that Jesus is using. And when we think of a vine, what we know of uh, grapevines is this. The ground must be carefully cultivated. 
in order for the vine to prosper and to bear fruit. The other thing we know about a vine is not only must the ground be cultivated and actually clean, the vine is a prolific garden. It takes off. As a matter of fact, it will take over. It runs away with itself, sort of like too much energy. And as a matter of fact, the only way for that vine, which is a runaway kind of piece of gardening, that vine has to be pruned in order to bear fruit. We know from this image and from history concerning vine tending that a young vine was not allowed to bear fruit for three years to put the nutrients into the vine itself. There's another thing that's interesting about this analogy. The wood of a vine, as you notice in the scripture, is not good for anything except one thing, to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, the vine is just burned up. It's thrown away. It's useless. Think about it this way. Have you ever seen a piece of furniture that was made from the wood of a grapevine? Not likely. You probably also don't have a piece of furniture in your house that was made from the wood of a citrus tree. They're there for a purpose, to bear fruit. They don't produce anything else of worth. I remember growing up in South Florida and tending many, many citrus trees. We had to cultivate the ground in the special way that it needed. We had to give the soil the proper nutrients. And about this time of the year, really, as I recall, about May, we used to prune the trees. The fruit was picked clean. It was summer, and it was time to do a radical pruning. And when we got done pruning those trees, you could see right through the branches. There were some leaves left, but it looked really barren. And there was a reason for it. If we let that tree grow and continue to get as big as it naturally could, it would never produce the fruit that we needed on the tree. There was a sense in which it was almost painful to look at. Before we trimmed the tree, it was lush and green and beautiful. And when we trimmed the tree, it was barren. As a matter of fact, when we trimmed the tree, sap flowed from the tree. There was something painful about it. Not only that, the gardener, that would be me, when he or she trimmed the tree, was likely to get stuck with the thorns on the tree. So imagine that image, if you will, and apply it to what Jesus says. You, says Jesus, to those who are listening and to you, the church, you're the vine of God. Maybe it's over the top. You're the citrus tree of God. And in order for me to make that citrus tree, that grapevine grow, I'm going to have to prune it. There's something else that's interesting about Jesus' image and metaphor. Jesus is now making a dramatic claim. Here's the drama of his claim. He's basically saying, Israel, the land, the people, 
you're no longer the exclusive vine of God. We're talking about people who are going to be all over the earth. It's a new day, says Jesus. You're the vine and I'm the branches. I'm the vine and you're the branches. No longer will there be references to the land of Israel in a prophetic sense because prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus. No longer will the vine refer to Israel exclusively. It will refer to all the people of God. Things are changing. And if you want the kingdom of God to be established where you are, says Jesus, you got to stay in the vine. Because the only way you can bear fruit is to stay in the vine. Stay in me. There's a new era on the horizon, says Jesus. It's a new way of life. As a matter of fact, you won't be able to live without living in me. There is no spiritual nourishment. And there's some tough time com- com- times coming. Remember where Jesus was. He was very close to approaching the, the cross in John's gospel when we hear this declaration. Jesus is about to not only die himself and be raised from the grave, but the apostles who are following him and listening to him are about to go through some intense persecution. There's some tough times ahead, said Jesus. And you must stay in me. As a matter of fact, staying in me might mean that there's going to be some pruning that's going to go on. And pruning is difficult. Pruning is painful. He may even have been referring to people like Judas, who appeared to be part of the vine, but were eventually cut off for the purpose of the nutrition for the vine. Jesus goes on to say, I want you in all of this to find great joy. Serving me, says Jesus, should not be a drudgery. I want to find, want you to find your joy in me by staying in the vine. I also says, I also, Jesus says, I want you to love one another. You're going to need each other in this time of difficulty that's approaching. You're going to have to stick together. You're going to have to love one another. So in this new way of life, in this new era, I want you to have great joy and I want you to love one another. And I want you to know something. I love you. Greater love has no one than this, that a person lay down his life for his friends. You can see the hint of the future. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I love you that much. I want you to know that. So if we take a look at these verses in chapter 15 of John's gospel, we might ask ourselves a question. What is the key to life? What is the key to life? First of all, the key to life is recognizing your dependence upon Jesus Christ. There's no life without me. Apart from me, said Jesus, you can't do anything. It might look like something. 
It might look like a prolific vine, but it won't be because you're not in me. Second key to life. First is you recognize your dependence upon Jesus Christ. The second key to life is you embrace the interdependence that you have with the others. Jesus is calling the disciples not to go it alone, not to be Lone Ranger Christians. And you'll see this in chapter 16 and 17 and 18. He's calling them together. I want you to be together. I want you to love one another in community. Why? Because community shapes you. Can you imagine being shaped anywhere better or more thoroughly than in community? Think of your family. Think of your relationship with your children or your husband or your wife. You know full well that in that community you are shaped and you are pruned and you're in conflict. And the conflict is not necessarily all about anger. It's anger in the midst of love. Jesus says, I want you to be in community. It shapes you. And I also want you to be in community because it's a witness to the world. We happen to be very individualistic people. And it's part of the blight of Americanism that is to be individualistic. Jesus pushes back against that notion, though he's not talking about 21st century people necessarily. He's basically saying... Don't go it alone. Because when you are together, when you are united in the vine, you're a witness to the world. Let me put it differently. Maybe a little bit controversially. You can't witness to the world on your own. Oh, it may seem that you can, but Jesus is saying you're united with other people in this vine. It's not about you. It's about me. It's not about you. It's about others as well. So Jesus says, I want you to embrace your interdependence and thus witness to the world. The final thing I want to note that Jesus says is that your obedience is going to, or ought to, flow from your love. You know what our default tendency is when we think about discipleship? Our default tendency is to be the best grape on the vine. It's to be as good as we can be. We want to be excellent followers of Jesus. We want to follow Jesus because we love him. And Jesus understood the power of that love. If we're focused almost exclusively on how we can be better and how we can improve ourselves, it's possible that our love is not driving our desires. It's possible that 
a quest for perfection is driving our desires. Let me put it another way. If you and I are constantly focused on getting it right, getting it right, one of two things will happen. Either you will become and I will become a legalist who always has to get it just right. And where's that going to lead? It's going to lead right back to me and to pride. Here's another possibility when we're focused constantly on getting it right. We'll get discouraged. You know that feeling? You try so hard. We'll get discouraged. And frequently when we do, we drift away. We give up. We walk out of community. We walk away from God. Why? Because we're trying so hard to be the best grape possible. There's a lot of things over the years of ministry that have, maybe this is too dramatic, but I'll say it, broken my heart. But I don't think anything has wounded me as much as seeing people try to be the best grape they can be and then getting discouraged and walking away from the faith. Don't focus on being the best grape. Instead, focus on loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. You know what Jesus says? If you love me, you will keep my commandments because it's all about love. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, so grateful that your word refocuses us and provides clarity. Sometimes it's hard to understand and other times it's really quite simple. And this picture that Jesus paints is really quite simple. Just abide in me. Just love me. And love one another. And that will be witness enough to your world. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of that gospel message. And we pray that you will help us to focus on the important thing, not being the best grape, but loving you and loving one another. In your name we pray. Amen.